scripture from today's teaching is Psalms 63, 1 through 8. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. This is the word of God to us. Amen. You guys can grab a seat. Hey, good morning. Thank you so much for being with us. It's fun to see your your face. Um, I'm really, really excited to jump in today and start this new series. Before we do that, I want to read a mission statement uh, from a really well-known university and just try to see if you could pinpoint who this is. So let me jump in. To be plainly instructed and consider well that the main end of your life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ. This comes from a really well-known university. Uh, If you don't know who this is yet, let me just fill in a few more gaps for you. Uh, One of the primary goals of this university was uh, they wanted to exclusively hire Christian professors. Then they spent a lot of energy and focus on the spiritual formation of all of their students. And the hope was that coming out of this university, as students would graduate, they would be releasing ministers for the gospel all over the world. And if you got a diploma from this university, it would actually read in Latin this phrase, truth for Christ and for the church. And you've probably heard of this university, you probably know who it is. It was founded in 1636, and it's Harvard. Now, maybe you didn't know that that was Harvard's past, but about 80 years into Harvard starting as a exclusively Christian university to deploy people for the cause of the gospel Uh, for the love of Jesus across the world. About 80 years into that, uh, some students and some other people felt like Harvard had drifted from their original mission. And so they started Yale as a counter, you know, university to kind of combat a little bit of the secularization that was happening among Harvard. So you may not know that Harvard and Yale were both started as exclusively Christian universities. And yet today you would, you would never, ever know. Now, here's why I share all of that, because what happened to Harvard is often what happens to every institution, every business, every church, and not only on a kind of a corporate level, but even every individual. And that's what I just want to call drift. Over time, have you noticed how we don't drift naturally into health or where we want to be or where we started out to be, but we actually drift into unhealth. It's the law of thermodynamics that Everything goes from order naturally into chaos. You know this with your lawn. You know this with your physical body. Like today, I I didn't wake up and and go to the gym, which makes like four or five years that I haven't done that. And I, I didn't wake up looking like Brad Pitt either. And that's just the cause of not going to the gym. And so here's my point. My point is, uh, nowhere have I found this to be more true, uh, not just in other areas of life and my marriage and our parenting and my finances and all of that, the, the place that I feel most passionate about this reality of drift is in my own life with Jesus. Even as a pastor, I can't tell you how many times I go from being 
absolutely in love with Jesus, willing to push all my chips in and have all of my heart be for him. And a couple hours or days later, I'm contemplating sinning. I'm contemplating the the desire to run from God. So nowhere do I feel the drift more than in my own soul with Jesus. I somehow managed to go from passion to complacency way faster than I realize. Maybe you can relate to this. Maybe I'm not the only one. So here, thank you. I'm not the only one. That's good. <laughs> thank you for that. So he, he, here's what we're doing today. We're starting a new series called Renewal. And here's how this series came about. Let me give you the why behind this. We had just spent four months preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, which is the most foundational set of teachings that Jesus gives the church on what it really means to be a follower of Jesus, how to live in the way of Jesus in the world. And here's what happened to our pastors. As we kind of walked through the series over and over, we began to look at our own lives And we looked at the teachings of Jesus on marriage, on sex, on lust, on money, possessions, on how we handle life in this world with enemies and anger and retaliation and all of these things. We kept looking at the teachings of Jesus and then we were looking at our own lives and there was a tragic gap between those two things. And somewhere along the way, we as followers of Jesus, we felt the the drift in our own souls, that we've drifted from what he intended. And, and here's what we've realized, that what's going to fix our church is not more programs. It's not more like if we just preach the right sermons or if we open up to the right text or whatever. There's nothing that we can do to fix this drift. And it's not just happening in us. It's not happening just in you, but it's happening on a church level and it's happening in our city and in our culture. How do we address this? And here's where we, where we came. The, the, the bottom line is that more than we need anything else as a group of people, we need God. And we cannot do anything apart from him. We don't need more programs. We don't need more things to throw in front of you. We need the power and the presence of God to come and bring a sense of renewal to the church. So that's why we're doing this series. Uh, We've drifted. Where have we drifted? Let me just give you a couple ways that I think we've drifted, and maybe some of this will resonate with you. Uh, The first is more on a personal level. I think that there's been some personal drift into apathy. I think people in this room, followers of Jesus, and by the way, I realize that not everybody here is a follower of Jesus. If you're wrestling, if you're kind of doubting the claims of Christianity, we're just glad that you're here. And I think this series is going to be really helpful for you. But if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, chances are there's parts of your heart that have drifted into apathy. A few weeks back, I was in Colorado with my wife and some friends. And while we were in Colorado, I don't know about you, but there's something about the mountains that just does something to me emotionally. Like I get emotionally moved being in the mountains. It does something for me on a soul level. And I love it. It's like every morning we would wake up and we would have Pikes Peak right there. Just this beautiful landscape of mountains in our view. And it never got old to me. But if you talk to people that have lived in Colorado for about 30 years or so, they still love to live there. Like they're obviously fans of Colorado. But do you know what doesn't happen to them anymore? They're not emotionally moved by the mountains. They're not jaw dropped every time they wake up and they see the landscape. They, they become so local and so accustomed to the mountains that it doesn't even do anything on a soul level like it does if you see it for the first time. And here's the thing that I think has happened to a lot of us is we have become gospel locals. We've become gospel locals where we talk about these realities of grace and forgiveness and the realities that the father loved you so much that he sent the son to live the life that you couldn't live and die the death that you deserve to die and rise again from the dead to offer you forgiveness 
and a new identity and a family and and an unshakable kingdom that won't ever go away. Like he brought you all of these things and we look at that and we go, yeah, but what else do you have for me? We're not moved by the reality of the gospel anymore. In fact, you can see it when you find people that are really passionate and are really excited and maybe even like going for it as they, they sing worship songs and you just tell in conversation that like they're so hungry for God and in the back of your head somewhere you go, oh, that's cute. They must be new. They must be new here. The reality of the gospel no longer moves us. So I just want to ask you as a diagnostic for, for you in the room, when was the last time that the reality of Jesus brought you to tears? The reality of being forgiven of every sin moved you emotionally. When was the last time that singing a song about the work of God on your behalf, it just, it did something and you started to well up, your eyes started to well up with tears. We become in many ways apathetic. The second drift that I think has happened is not just a personal drift into apathy, but I think there's been a communal drift into forgetfulness. And here's what I mean. There are two, two ways that we've forgotten. We've forgotten who we are and we've forgotten our greatest need. So like as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, the church is intended to be salt and light, a city on a hill that in a dark world, people can look at and go, this is the way of Jesus in the world. This is salt, this is light. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus. And I think somewhere along the way, we become so just enamored with the world and and almost afraid of looking weird in our culture because the way of Jesus is so weird and different and other that kind of our primary mission strategy as of late has been, we just wanna make sure the world knows that you can be a Christian and be cool too. So we'll drink beer like you and we'll sing the song. And by the way, none of that's wrong in and of itself in moderation or whatever. None of that's the, the issue. But the issue is that somewhere along the way, we've forgotten that the way of Jesus is bizarre to our world. And we started to change and tweak and adjust to match up more with culture. We've drifted in a lot of ways. We've forgotten who we are. But then maybe even a more scary thing that we've forgotten is what our greatest need is. I think about all the people in the room that come in from week in and week out and think about the stuff that is going on in our lives. I mean, there's crazy stuff. You've got marital problems. You've got issues with your singleness. You've got issues with relationships in the church. You've got brokenness in your soul. You've got addictions that are at play. You've got financial problems. You you have job stress. Even I as a pastor have job stress. Maybe especially as a pastor, I have job stress. Thank you so much for that, by the way, right? Like there's there's job stress and, and, and for some of us, it's even boredom and you don't even know how to talk about it because we live in a world where we're so busy, 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 but you feel you feel just on a soul level bored. And we come in and we're like, man, just give me something to like fix this and tell me something, like preach something that's gonna address this need. And can I just be honest with you? There is not a life hack. There is not a sermon. There's not an app. There's not a quick fix that you, the greatest need that you have is not any of those things. The greatest need that you have is for the power and the presence of God in your life. That's what you need. And maybe you're here and you don't even feel it or realize it. That's okay. All these other longings that you carry on a soul level beneath all of those is a longing for God, even if you don't know how to talk about it. And that's what you need the most. And yet we've forgotten. I think the third way we've drifted, it's not just into apathy. It's not just into forgetfulness, but there's been a cultural shift and a drift into secularization. Did you know it's kind of a hard time to be a Christian right now? 
The church landscape in America is changing rapidly. Uh, Estimates are showing that by 2050, if the trend stays as it is today, uh, with more churches closing than are planted each year, which is absolutely happening, by 2050, they estimate about 35 million young people who grew up in the church will disaffiliate from Christianity. That's over a million people a year. They estimate also that the, the overall percentage of Christians will drop from 73% in America to 59%. Now, that may, may not sound like a big shift, but 73%, that's about 7 out of 10 people currently in our culture claim to be a follower of Jesus. In 2050, they're estimating that it's going to be about 5 out of 10, which is a big deal when you think about the culture and how that might change half of our country saying, no, I don't even find Christianity to be helpful or relevant to my life whatsoever. So think about all of these things together. There's, on an individual level, there's apathy that started to creep into the church. On a communal level with our church, there's a, a forgetfulness that's kind of taken over where we've forgotten what our greatest need is week in and week out. We've forgotten who we are and what we need. And then on the, the deepest level behind that, there's this drift into secularization and our culture. If you add all of that up, things are looking really, really bleak. Can I, can I be honest with you? That's probably the best news that we could ever have happen to us. That's like the best news I could ever have happen. Let me tell you why. Because if you study the history of renewal and revival, both in the Old and New Testament, and also throughout history, here's what you're going to find that when the power of God decides to show up and move and disrupt and change and fill people and bring renewal, it is not when things are going according to plan. It is not when things are headed in the right direction. It's not when we feel really good about everything. It's when things are at their darkest. It's when everything feels like it's going away. It's, fi- it's, when, it's when the church looks more like a dead corpse than the bride of Christ. That is the moment when God decides to move and power and bring renewal to the people who need it the most. If you think about the tide going out, James Burns in his book on revival, he he talks about the tide going out and it feels like we live in a space right now where the tide of the presence of God has gone out and we're just kind of standing here wondering what's going on. But behind the waves, behind all of these breakers, there's something churning, there's something building and you can't keep it back one day, eventually, that tide's going to come back in. And this is the moment that you and I live in. And, and, and that's why I want to camp out at Psalm 63 for just a minute, because I think what the psalmist does here is so helpful for those of us who find ourselves at our lowest, not at our best. So Psalm 63, go there with me. Look at verse 1. O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Now, often what we envision with this psalm is kind of this picture of a beautiful wooded scene and a really healthy, strong buck who has kind of, you know, gracefully walked up to a babbling brook of water and has kneeled down to take a refreshing sip of this water and then kind of prance about his day, right? That's the image that we have. And then almost this verse written in cursive off to the side. 
And like if you were to go to, to Hobby Lobby, like that's the, you would find that there. There'd be like seven of those that you could buy for your house. In fact, and don't do this, but if you Google this right this minute, that verse, the first line of that verse, I guarantee you, I did this this morning, like millions of those images would pop up on your screen because this is what we envision. We envision King David, the, the author of this psalm, being in a place where he's just so connected to his heart. He's so overwhelmed with the presence of God. He's so moved by God. He's so in love with God. He's so in touch with his heart that he begins to write this psalm out of an overflow of emotion, an explosion of devotion towards God. But that's actually not what's happening. The psalmist is giving us a very, very different picture than the one that we often imagine. It's of a malnourished deer in the middle of a dry desert that if it does not get water immediately, it will die. And that is the image of this person, King David, as he writes this psalm. He's saying, there's something that I need more than anything right now, and it's the presence of God. It's helpful to know the background of this psalm. Uh, What's happening in David's life is not that he's sitting in an ivory tower kind of having coffee with the Holy Spirit, like the Holy Spirit literally made him his coffee that morning and he has his Old Testament opened up and he's pouring his heart out to God. That's not what's happening in his life. What's happening in his life is that David is on the run. And he's on the run, even though he's king, he's running for his life because one of his sons, Absalom, is in the middle of instigating a coup and trying to kill his own dad so that he could take over the throne and be king in Israel. David is on the run for his life. He's hiding out in the desert. Look at next to Psalm 63 at the top, the subtitle that says, A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. He's pinning this psalm while he's hiding out in a cave, desperate for his life. That's what's going on in the background. And he takes all of his angst and all of his fear and all of his worry, and he's at the bottom of everything, and he cries out to God, and he says, God, I need your presence more than I need water. Like the way a starving deer in desperate need of water needs water, that's how I need you. And he begins to aim all of his intention, all of his passion, all of his need at God realizing that that's what he needs more than anything else. It does not matter what is happening in your life. In fact, if your life feels like you're at the end of your rope right now, if you feel like you're falling apart, if if you feel like you're drowning in addiction, if you feel like marriage is breaking apart, if, if you feel like you're a million miles away from the presence of God, can I just tell you, like, you're the type of person that needs renewal, and that's the time in your life when God likes to bring renewal. And this isn't just a one-off in scripture. We see this all over the place. Like, let me give you another example in Psalm 42. This is not King David. This is another psalmist. He writes these words. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Now look at his words. When shall I come and appear before God? He feels distant. He feels cut off. Verse three says, my tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. He's remembering going to the temple, going to the presence of God and enjoying the presence of God. And he's not in that place right now. He's cut off from that place. And he says this in verse five, why are you cast down, O my soul? 
And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. If you feel like you're at the bottom of your life, if you feel like things are falling apart, you need renewal. You need the presence of God. And that's what these psalmists are crying out. In that hard place, God, I need you. And then again, we see this in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, literally in a Roman prison for preaching the good news of Jesus, chained to a Roman guard, he writes these words. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I counted everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. In a Roman prison, I counted everything as loss just to know you, Jesus. Here's my point. Renewal is what happens when we get to the end of ourselves. This is what happens when we get to the end of ourselves. And maybe, just maybe, God is allowing the circumstances in your life. He's allowing the brokenness that's entered. He's allowing that shocking doctor's report. He's allowing the thing in your own internal struggles and all the other stuff going on in our world. Maybe he's allowing all of these things to get you to the place where you can cry out, oh God, there's nothing more that I need than you. I need your presence. Jonathan Edwards, who saw a lot of revivals in his ministry and in his day, he says this. He says, when God is about to bestow some great blessing on his church, it is often his manner in the first place so to order things in his providence as to show his church their great need of it and to bring them into distress for want of it and so to put them upon crying earnestly to him for it. So maybe God is exposing the brokenness in our own lives, the brokenness in our political system, the brokenness in our culture to get us to the place where we as a people wake up and realize that we need to be renewed. So what keeps us from renewal? What keeps us from encountering this type of powerful presence of God? Well, let me give you a couple things. Number one, um, I think comfort that eventually leads to complacency. There's probably nothing more true of us as a group of people than we are so comfortable. And listen, I love the comforts that we have. Like we have houses, we've got AC, we've got amazing amenities, we've got dog parks, we've got great coffee shops, we've got new restaurants popping up everywhere. I love all of those things. But can I tell you that there's something about those things that can over time just kind of lull us to sleep? We become so comfortable that we're so good at numbing the pain that we feel, we'll hit it with a beer or with a latte or with Netflix or with whatever, and we, we become so good at just kind of numbing the pain that we feel that we now kind of have forgotten that we have needs at all and that our greatest need is God himself. Comfort can lead to complacency, a type of apathy that becomes difficult to snap out of. In addition to that, I think one of the things that keeps us from renewal is busyness. As a culture, this is kind of our mantra. The last time you asked somebody, hey, how are you? Their response was, I'm good, but I'm busy. 
we're so busy and and even if we're not busy, we're going to lie about being busy because it'd be weird to be like, oh, I'm so bored, you know, I don't have anything. Like, so, so as a culture, we go from thing to thing to thing. We don't have time to pray. We don't have time to read our Bible. We don't ha- have time to seek the face of God. We don't have time to cry out for renewal because we are too busy. We don't even have time to feel the pain anymore. And so we av- avoid God. I think in addition to that, one of the things that keeps us from renewal is what I just want to title American Gods. And we did a series uh, last year called American Gods that you can look up. This is just a, a series that talks about the, the, the Western culture, how it holds out to us a vision of the good life when it comes to money and power and achievement and success and possessions and ourselves and all of this stuff. And I think what happens over time is that we as Christians can become so enamored with what the world offers us that we start to worship them in a way that we don't even sense our need for God anymore. In addition to that, one of the things that keeps us from renewal is secret sexual sin. And I'm talking specifically to followers of Jesus. Tim Keller says, he's a pastor in New York, he says that the greatest thing keeping revival from the church in our culture today is secret sexual sin in the church. And then I think the fifth one that keeps us from renewal is what I just want to call fear. I mean, let's be honest. If God were to show up and move in powerful ways, he might ask us to do things that we're uncomfortable to do. If God were to renew us and give us a fresh vision of what it means to be all in for him, to count our life as rubbish so that we can have more of Jesus, he might make demands on us that we are unwilling to give up. If God were to move in power, it might look weird because then we couldn't go through business as usual on a Sunday morning. And if we've got somebody here that isn't a follower of Jesus and someone is showing some sort of deep compassion for God or desire for God or some sort of, some brokenness over their own sin, crying out for mercy, that might be weird. And we don't want to look weird. We want to be in control. And so fear keeps us from really seeking the face of God. These are some of the things that I think are at play not out there somewhere, like in us, in this church, in our lives, in my life, keeping us from renewal. But there's good news because God wants to bring renewal. So how do we experience that? How do we actually step into this? Well, let me just give you quickly three different phases of renewal. The first one is what I wanna call the crystallization of discontent. Now, that might seem like a really weird phrase, but this is a phrase that psychologists actually use today, especially when they're talking about addictions, right? The crystallization of discontent is what happens to a person when their level of discontent grows to the place where it crystallizes and it takes action. Because there's a lot of people that are discontent with their lives. There's a lot of people that are discontent with culture. There's a lot of people that are discontent with the church. But what happens when that discontent crystallizes is that it leads just from being discontent into actual action. The crystallization of discontents, what what happens if you're in a cult and you realize you're in a cult and you leave? The crystallization of discontents, what happens when you're in an abusive relationship and you fully realize that and you leave? That's what happens. And this is when you say, enough is enough. Enough is enough, I'm done with this. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And if you look at renewal throughout history, what you're gonna find is that a group of people get to the place where they look at the church and they say, this is not the way it was supposed to be. 
They look at the book of Acts. They see the way God was moving. They see the way, the way that he was at work. They see the way that people were, were like counting the cost and going all in for Jesus. And they say, we are discontent with the status quo. We're discontent with just singing songs and the power of God not coming. We're discontent with just preaching sermons and, and just going away the same. Like we're discontent. This is not the way God intended it to be. And that discontent crystallizes and it causes them to drive themselves forward in action. J.I. Packer says it this way. He says, different concerns drive Christians to renew their vows of consecration to God and to seek his face. Now listen to what he's about to say and see if any of this resonates with you. The occasion may be guilt, fear, a sense of impotence or failure, discouragement, nervous exhaustion, and depression, assaults of temptation and battles with indwelling sin, ominous illness, experiences of rejection or betrayal, longing for God. My guess is that every person in this room can grab one of those and say, yes, that's inside of me. And here's, what, here's the good news of renewal, that when you allow that discontent with that thing to crystallize to the place that it drives you forward in action, this is phase one of how God often brings renewal and revival to the church. Where are you discontent? This is phase one. Second phase is what I want to call personal examination. Personal examination. If you study every revival that's ever happened, what, what happens eventually is that crystallization of discontent, it moves outside of just looking outside of yourself at the world or the culture or the church or your marriage or that relationship or that other person. And all of a sudden, all of the shift, all of the focus shifts and you begin to look inside at personal examination. What is wrong in my own heart? What is off in me? What is to be grieved inside of me? Instead of seeing and mourning what's wrong out there, you begin to see and mourn what's wrong in here. And repentance becomes the, the primary hallmark of every single revival. People are overwhelmed at their sin. They're overwhelmed at the holiness and power of God. And that drives them to a place where they're deeply convicted, crying out to God for mercy. And God responds by bringing mercy. Personal examination, where you start to think about your own heart and not anybody else. That's phase two. And here's the third and final phase of often how God brings renewal. It's contending for the renewal itself. Contending for God to move. Look at Psalm 63 again and notice what the psalmist says. He says, oh God, you are my God. Now chances are most of us could say that line and be theologically accurate and be like, we believe that. We believe that God is our God. We believe true things about this God. But look at what he goes on to say. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. Theological reality, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. He says this, he says, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I'm desperate, right? I'm in depression. I'm running for my life. And then he says these words. So, like because of those realities, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. This has driven 
King David to the place of actually doing something about it where he cries out to God, I need your presence. Like there's something we actually have to do as the people of God to seek the face of God, to contend with God, to pray, to beg, to plead. Would you please break into my life? Would you please break away the apathy? Would you please wake me up out of my complacency? Would you do a work in my heart to where I don't just know my need, but don't feel the weight of it. I want to feel the weight of it and have this driving me to you. A.W. Tozer says it this way. He says, put yourself in the way of the blessing. It is a mistake to look for grace to visit us as a kind of benign magic or to expect God's help to come as a windfall apart from conditions known and met. There are plainly marked paths which lead straight to the green pastures. Let us walk in them. The desire... To desire revival, for instance, and at the same time to neglect prayer and devotion is to wish one way and to walk another. And so if you're curious, this whole series, it's really about renewal, but it's about those pathways to renewal. It's about what has happened when the church throughout history has rediscovered basic things that has brought about renewal and revival in the church and in their own inner life. So we're gonna talk about the gospel. We're gonna talk about the word. We're going to talk about worship. We're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about grace. We're going to talk about prayer. These are time-trusted pathways to the presence of God so that you can put yourself in the way of the blessing. Does that make sense? So that you can put yourself underneath God and say, God, I need you. I need you to move on my life. And there's so many stories of revival that I've been reading about and studying just to stir my heart and get me longing for it and help me know what I'm missing out on. And, and one of them that I've been studying is called the Hebrides Revival in 1949 to 1952. If you don't know where the Hebrides are, it's some islands off of Scotland. The population is less than half the size of the city of Moore. And in 1949, a powerful move of God swept over the entire island. And here's how it happened. Let me show you this picture. In the middle is a man named Duncan Campbell who went on to say that he played zero role in this revival whatsoever. It was all a work of God. To his left and to his right are two elderly ladies. They're sisters. One was 84, the other was 82. One was blind and the other suffered from extreme arthritis. And you know what happened to them? The crystallization of discontent. These two old ladies felt overwhelmed and burdened by the fact that in their small church, there were not any young people at all. Everybody was was in their 80s and was dying out. And they felt burdened that they were not passing on the good news of Jesus to the next generation. And, And so what happened is these two ladies felt so burdened that their discontent crystallized into action and they began to pray. They prayed two nights a week from 10 p.m. to about three or four in the morning two nights a week, on Tuesdays and on Fridays. And eventually the pastors of their church joined in and they did this for over six and a half weeks. These two old ladies would get down on their knees and they would cry out to God, God, would you please move? Would you please break in? Would you please do a work? Would you, like you've promised to do this, would you please do this? And eventually Duncan Campbell shows up on the island, but before he even gets there, Duncan Campbell was a pastor. He was preaching at a big conference in Glasgow and it's so bizarre, like the spirit of God just told him, go to the Hebrides. So he shows up at the Hebrides and this massive revival breaks out. And here's what it looked like. We'll talk more about this over the next few weeks. But what was happening over and over and over again is in the middle of the night, like 3 a.m., 
Hundreds of people in the town would just wake up and begin to cry out to God for repentance. They would rush out of their homes. They would go to the church and they would be like pounding on the door, begging, please, somebody tell us about Jesus. And someone would have to go wake up Duncan Campbell and he'd come out and, and he would just begin to preach and people were coming to know Jesus literally by the hundreds. This went on from 1949 to 1952. There were crab fishermen that were in their boats and the presence of God would overwhelm them. They would run out of the boat. They would leave their boats, leave the, the, all of their crabs and they would go and they would find a church and they would cry out to God for repentance. I mean, story after story of, of, of bars and of dance houses and what we might call clubs today, just emptying out at nine o'clock at night or whatever and people rushing to find out about Jesus. Duncan Campbell says that he estimates about 75% of everybody who was converted during the Hebrides revival was converted before they even came near to a church or heard a sermon. And the only way they knew who had become a Christian is they hosted prayer meetings every day. And the next day, uh, people that were converted the night before would show up at the prayer meeting and they would tell their story. Like, hey, I just became a Christian. Here's what happened. It was in the middle of the night. It was bizarre. This happened. Yeah, this is amazing. And here's my point. If God cares about some random island with a population smaller than the city of Moore, don't you think he might care about us too? Don't you think he might want to move in our city as well? Don't you think he might want to do something like this in our church too so that we don't just go through the motions and then die and call it quits? What if God wants to pour out more of his Holy Spirit and more renewal maybe even revival. This is what we're going after. So where do we go from here? Well, I've said it before. I'm going to say it again. We need God. We need God. We need more of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, what we need is not more knowledge, more understanding, more apologetics, more reconciliation of philosophy and science and religion and all modern techniques. No, we need a power that can enter into the souls of men and break them and smash them and humble them and make them anew. And that is the power of the living God. And we must be confident that God is his power, this power as much today as he had 100 years ago and 200 years ago. And so we must begin to seek the power and to pray for it. We must begin to plead and yearn for it. Friends, this is not a guilt trip. This is not a message of, hey, do more and try harder and pursue God. This is not a message of just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and go find passion somewhere. This is not a message meant to shame you based on the state of your own heart. Here's what this is. This is just me trying to expose you to the greatest need that you have, and that is the presence of God in your life. Do you feel the weight of your need today? See, the gospel is something that we have to embrace right now. And the gospel is not primarily, first and foremost, hey, give your life to Jesus so that you can show Jesus how much you love him and how serious you are. The gospel is out of an overflow of the love that God had for you. He gave his son, Jesus, for you because he is in love with you. He wants you. He longs for you. The gospel isn't, hey, just make some promises to God in the heat of the moment. No, the, the gospel is that God has made promises to never leave you and never forsake you. He has come into your life through the person of Jesus. He has grabbed a hold of you. He is holding on to you more than you're holding on to him. 
The gospel isn't go find passion for God out there somewhere. The gospel is that God has had such a passion for you that he literally gave everything, even his own life, to win you back home. The gospel is not go find a new heart that can actually desire these things. The gospel is that God wants to offer you a new heart as a gift of his grace that you do not earn or deserve. This is what God is doing in the gospel.